it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening, this is your host, Dan Zupanski, for the program True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Theodore Bundy was one of the more most infamous and flamboyant American serial killers on record. And his story is a complex mix of psychopathology, criminal investigation, and the U.S. legal system. This in-depth examination of Bundy's life and his killing spree that totaled dozens of victims is drawn from legal transcripts correspondence, and interviews with detectives and prosecutors. Using these sources, new information on several murders is unveiled. The biography follows Bundy from his broken family background to his execution in the electric chair. My special guest this evening is Kevin Sullivan. We're going to be discussing the book, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. My special guest and journalist and author, Kevin Sullivan, welcome to the program, and thank you for agreeing to this interview, Kevin Sullivan. Well, thanks, Dan. It's uh, it's nice talking with you again. Well, thanks very much, and I'm I, I told the audience that we'd have you on, and here you are. We're yeah. actually going to be talking about Ten Buddy. For all those people that listened in last week and suffered through my explanation, here is the real deal, Kevin Sullivan talking about mm-hmm. Ted Bundy. Now, first off, uh, this is always a question I think that uh, deserves to be answered by an author. Why did you decide to write there have been many books about Ted Bundy, um, best-selling books. Why did you decide to write a book about Ted Bundy? What did you think you could bring to the official record? Okay. Well, <clears throat> I never dreamed I would write a book about Theodore Bundy. It was I knew the case a little bit, but I was also aware that a good number of books had been written about Ted Bundy, and um, Uh, A friend of mine, James Massey, he was uh, employed by probation parole here in Kentucky for over 20 years. And occasionally we would talk about the Bundy case because uh, Jim is good friends with uh, retired detective uh, Jerry Thompson out of Utah. And for those people who don't know, Thompson is the detective who kind of unmasked Bundy when Bundy was arrested soon after Bundy was arrested on what they thought was suspicion of burglary because of some things he had in his car. And then once Bundy came to light in connection with the missing and murdered girls in Utah, of course, it, you know, they, they, they traced it back home to the murders in Washington State, and then the whole world knew. But Jim Massey had been friends with Jerry for uh, a good number of years. And so in 2005, I got a call from Jim one night. He said, listen, Jerry Thompson and his wife, they're coming to Louisville. And uh, would you like to have dinner? You know, with them? I said, sure, I think that would be great because this would be an opportunity to, to, to meet a guy that was on a famous case. But I never believed anything would come from it. Well, when he came to Louisville, 
he brought Ted Bundy's murder kit, which wow. I knew he had, but but we didn't know that he was going to bring it to Louisville. But he knew Jim wanted to see it, so Jim called me, and I got to see this stuff. And Jerry was here in Louisville for several days. Jim got to keep the bag. I brought it to my house. I got to interview Jerry, and he even gave me, and he gave Jim also, one of the green trash bags from Bundy's car that Bundy used to put his victim's clothes in these bags, and he would dump the clothes off at a location separate from where he put the bodies. But anyway, when this occurred, uh, it sparked something in me, and I thought, well, it's going to translate into an article for Snitch. Snitch was a uh, weekly print newspaper that at one time was running in five or six states, I believe five states, and by 2005, it was only running editions in Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky. But So I wrote an article for Snitch because this whole thing was so surreal, bringing the bag to my home, putting the stuff out on the dining room table, just as Bundy used to carry it in, into his house. And so we photographed it. I wrote an article for Snitch. However, that thing that is intrinsic with writers when they get interested in something, Sure. I decided to write a book about Bundy, and people said you really don't need to because, you know, Bundy's been done quite a bit. But there was just that something, an instinct within me, a drive, if you will, to just go ahead and push out because uh, I was always very good in, in, in investigative kind of things and finding people that were part of a story. And, and then I, I've always been good in letting my personality shine, and they would talk to me. So I thought I'm going to see what's here. Turns out that once I got, you know, halfway through the book, I was uncovering numerous things that had never been in print before about these murders. And uh, so the book really developed its own unique flavor. And then after I got into it, I began to see that most of the books that have been written about Ted Bundy were written about people that had direct contact with him. And many of those were published years and years ago. Right. Some of the more recent ones were by attorneys and stuff, but but the ones that the, the really main books are like Bob Keppel's, uh, uh, Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth, The Only Living Witness, and I think the, the the only books, two books that have been written by people that didn't know Ted, uh, my book, The Bundy Murders, and then Stephen Wynn and David Merrill's The Killer Next Door. Right. So everybody else had a connection to Bundy. So you know what? When you go into something like that, you're not so sure how it's going to turn out. I thought, oh, I, I can produce a good book. I had absolutely no idea how many new things that I would discover and how forthright some of these detectives would be. In fact, I called William Hagmeyer one uh, day during my research, and I mentioned uh, the name of a girl that Bundy killed, Lynette Culver, out of um, – and I don't want to get ahead in the story. But I, I, I mentioned something to Bill that even he didn't know. And Bill sat in with every confession Bundy ever made. And yet I, Bill said, if you ever find out, and I'll tell, I'll tell him more about this later, but he said, if you can confirm what you told me, which he had his doubts about it, he said, let me know. And I did confirm it later on and then told him why he didn't know it. But but we can get into that later. But th- these are the kind of things that proved to be somewhat shocking to me because I was like a novice then discovering these things. And yet here I thought everything about Theodore Bundy has been known, and that wasn't the case at all. So you basically got into this. You uh, assumed this project. You were interested in doing this book. And it was just mm-hmm. a gut instinct that you could find something, and you were definitely just interested in in looking yes. at this case. But you must have known that, or at least been at least been confident, there was something new that you would discover. I felt like um, it was it was it was almost strange. It's almost like a gut feeling. You could you can even call it a sixth sense in in a way. There was once it was so surreal having that bag come into my house, mm-hmm. and and. Once I wrote the article for Snitch, I really did think that that would be it. But the hunger to learn more just wouldn't go away. And something kept saying, do it. Go ahead and push forward. And I thought, you know what, maybe there are some new things to learn. But I knew that as a researcher and as a writer, I could produce a book that would be very good. 
a thing that I didn't know even then is that I could produce one that had so many new things in it and in an, and in essence would have a very unique flavor uh, of its own. Uh, for instance, I think I follow the murders very closely. I follow his trail you know, very closely. And like I say, scattered throughout the book, on many new aspects of this case that uh, had never come out before. And I know the, the fellow that runs the the, uh, uh, the Wikipedia site on Ted Bundy, he, he's gotten a copy of my book, and he cites four or five things that uh, I'm assuming are not, of course, in the other books. Uh, when we get into the murder of Lynette Culver, basically, before my book, very little was known about that murder. Right. But uh, I was able to, to dig into it and find out things from the people involved in the uh, in the investigation. And again, that's the case where William Hagmark just did not have the information. And really, there's no reason why he would have, because it came out in a different way and was not in just the regular confession that he attended. But again, we can get into that later. But these are the little unique things that make my book so different. Right. Now, let's go back to... Uh... Theodore Robert Bundy, uh, tell us about, everyone uh, is yearning for what was the background of Ted Bundy, and then they try to make some re- correlation between his early life and this mm-hmm. later monstrous acts, but at least mm-hmm. in this particular case, let's let's go back to the as, as far as you did your research about his mm-hmm. family life, his upbringing, what right. was Ted right. Bundy really like? Well... Ted Bundy is kind of an enigma, even when you look at his life from everything that we know. We can start to make judgments on when things went wrong and perhaps even why, but there's, there's, there's an oddity about his life because the person that developed there, if you look at his early life, he had some significant problems as a young child. Uh, he is the, uh, his father. Uh, was never married to his mother, Louise. She had had uh, an affair, I don't know the duration of it, probably very short, with a man they believe is his name is Jack Worthington. He was a sailor uh, that, uh, as I say in my book, blew in from the Second World War, but he didn't have any intention of fathering anything. Well, uh, these things, once Bundy learned them later, they were... Uh, traumatic to him, but the things that he would learn later can't explain away some of the odd things from his childhood, because we know Louise was exceedingly good to him. Louise loved him just like she loved all the children that came later. So it wasn't anything within Louise, and it wasn't anything with his stepfather, or not not his stepfather, but his adoptive father, Johnny Bundy. That's where he gets his name, Bundy. So it's not anything intrinsic to how they raised him. But, for example, when they were living in Philadelphia, uh, an area of uh, Philadelphia, um, and she had gone back home with Theodore as a baby, and, and, and they stayed there a while. And one of Louise's sisters, his aunt, said that she woke up one morning and Theodore had raised the covers of her bed, and he was placing kitchen knives with the tip pointed at her around her body. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, and I'm not a psychologist, but I can tell you now, for a child to do that unprovoked, uh, it speaks of significant damage in my mind and a, a very strange mindset. Sure. Uh, there's another thing in my book where uh, it could be the same aunt or another. She was standing at a like a train station with Ted uh, at about dusk, and she said that he almost morphed into something else. He transformed into some – his personality changed. And even though he was a child, she said it frightened her. So there were some significant things going on with Ted Bundy early on. It sounds to me like the fracturing of his personality happened early in his life for whatever reason. And then when the tough things came along in life, things that are are genuinely not pleasant, uh, he was not able to adapt and roll with the punches. And really, 
things got worse. And the way he responded to it early on, he he learned to live with a mask, okay? He became Ted Bundy on the outside to people, and then the real person on the inside that he even even he himself didn't understand. So you have a developing of a very odd character, and even though he can't explain it, he tried to compensate for it as he grew up by presenting certain masks, even though he knew things weren't right on the inside. But at the time, this is before his predatory years. This is when he knew he was strange, but he couldn't explain it. As that predatory uh, personality developed, and there were additions of other things in his life, particularly sexual things, fantasies, but not the normal kind, mixed with violence against women, as those things came into his life, that that helped him build this predatory personality that he had, which, of course, ultimately led to murder. Now, let's talk about, because as you talk about us, you know, we're not psychologists, but certainly right. we have heard stories where psychologists make conclusions, obviously, psychological sure. conclusions on what happened in, in this case, Ted Bundy's life. Now, a couple, sure. I think, important factors uh, to interpret uh, whoever you want is that the person he thought his was, it was his sister, he found out, discovered that was actually his mother and his who he thought his parents were, were actually his grandparents. Now, uh, tell us when this happened, and from all the research that you particularly did, not necessarily everyone else, but what you did was, what did you find in terms of how traumatic was that event when he did find out, and when did he find out, and what were the circumstances in in him being, that information being revealed to him? Right. Yeah, that's a very good question, actually. It's, It's actually two questions. First of all, the, the, the Bundy family years ago cut themselves off from anything having to do with the media. Uh, I, I never was able to ascertain uh, exactly. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exactly when Louise Bundy said, well, I'm not your aunt, I'm your mother. Uh, it may have been younger than later, but she hid from him a long time that he was illegitimate, okay? Because I don't think he found out he was illegitimate until he was much, much older when he found the the birth certificate. And there's even two stories floating uh, around about that, I believe, and I cover this in the book, but I think one is he just discovered it on his own or... He got into a verbal argument with his cousin, and his cousin had he, he had knowledge of this. Right. And and then he said something, and then Ted went and looked it up, and then basically kind of internally came unglued. Now I'm not sure. I was never able to ascertain when he learned that his mother was actually his mother. I think he learned that pretty early on. I think so, but I can't prove that. But uh, I do know that the illegitimate aspect he didn't know until later. And that's one of the things I was talking about. It's never a nice thing or a pleasant thing to learn that your father took off. But if you have a normal personality, you can adapt. These are the things that he could not handle. And it created significant rage in him, which was recorded 
later on by some people who were doing studies of him or you know writing court reports and stuff things would come out and um um so these things didn't just simmer in Bundy and he couldn't he couldn't turn them loose in fact his friends would say things like Ted being illegitimate, it's just not that big a deal. Because these guys who were his friends are thinking, what difference does it make? You've got parents that love you. Even though you have problems with your adoptive father, your mother loves you, and your adoptive father loves you. I mean, your life is moving on. Right. Not that big a deal. But to Ted, it was. See what I'm saying? And yeah. so they festered. These things festered within him. Now, to, to add to this, another very traumatic event, and, and this is uh, recorded in probably every book, that I've, or every bit of information that I've seen is that he has a particular relationship with a woman. Uh, he really puts her up on a pedestal, like I mentioned last night. He really respects yeah. her achievement, her, her yeah. family status, her wealth. It, yeah. this, is, this is the kind of person he aspires to, and it is almost, mm-hmm. almost like the great expectation story where he yeah. really, he really uh, doesn't fit in, and uh, that's one of his fears of being discovered in that way. And his right. biggest fear comes true. She rejects him. He's just not marriage material. Right. His ambition and his desire and his potential just not enough. Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, this woman and his effect, and and also that the talk of the similarity in uh, in looks, uh, characteristic wise, the looks right. of, of further victims. So tell us a little bit about both those things, please. Okay, I, I've seen one picture of Diane Edwards. That, that that's her real name. I, there's only a few people in the book that I don't use their real name, but but I give her another name in the book, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it is. It's been a while since I've read the book, and God knows a few years since I've done the research, but her name was Diane Edwards. I've seen one picture of her. She was a very, very good-looking woman, without question, and I'm sure Theodore was a little intimidated by that. However, he did like her, and I don't know whether he viewed her as a prize or what. She also came from a wealthy family in San Francisco, and she was, in his mind, I, I believe, and of course, you, you got to remember, he's not thinking like you or me or, or somebody else that, you know, if you say something to, they can relate in a normal way. I don't know everything driving him in this relationship, but she would be, I believe, in his mind, the epitome of what uh, the kind of woman he would want. Right. Now, at the same time, I don't believe that he felt like he was up to her status. And even, and this is something that people miss sometimes, even in the relationship with her, he could not refrain from some sociopathic tendencies, even with her. Like, she used to become irritated, so I've been told, and I've, I've seen the reports, where he would use her credit card without asking. Sure. Well, that doesn't that doesn't bode well. I mean, you know, you ought to ask if you're not even married. It would it would it would bode well if you would ask your girlfriend if you could borrow her credit card. Sure. Apparently, he had done that, and she, and she didn't like it. But the thing about Diane Edwards was is that, and I talked to people that had met Diane in social circles, and they said she was a very nice lady, very nice looking. The guy, one guy, told me she's very nice looking, and and so he, you know, I, and, and I guess they thought. They made a good couple, but but when Ted started to have problems later, academic, because Ted would go from doing well academically to maybe not doing so well. This and other aspects of him, of her person, of his personality that she didn't like, she eventually cut the relationship off, which really damaged him. And then later, and we can get into this later, he came back and won her again right before he started committing murders, uh, at least the murders of 1974. And he could have committed murders prior to then, but in 1974 with the Linda Ann Healy murder, that's when he set his course and he set his face to nothing but murder, and he was going to keep killing until he was caught or killed or what have you. He was never going to stop. But... He would then, at a later date, right before the murders started, he won her back. But then it was not for any other reason other than to win in this situation and then redump her. But she had a profound effect on his life without question. And the similarities of a lot of the women she kept, she had long, dark hair parted in the middle. 
Right. And if you look at photographs like uh, um, the, the 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 girl out of Carol Carol Durant out of Utah, right. and some of these other women. I mean, the, there are some that are very close to what you look like. Others are just a style of hair. And I know a lot of people have kicked that around. My opinion on this is that he did kill a certain type of woman. There was something to the women that he chose. And even though you look at a girl like Susan Rancourt out of CWSC uh, in Washington State, Central Washington State College, which is uh, – you know, some distance from uh, like Seattle and his normal killing ground. She had long hair part in the middle, but hers was more blonde or light brown. But but yes, there was something to the style of hair. Uh, he liked killing Caucasian girls. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me. We'll never know. These are one of the mysteries. But it could date back to things with Diane Edwards, women in general. God knows he wanted connections with women, normal connections. He wanted to destroy women, and he wanted to be loved by women, if that makes any sense at all. Sure. He wanted both things from them. He wanted women to murder, and he wanted women who would care about him. But as a sociopath, his love, quote-unquote, and his commitment to them could only go so far because he was anything but normal internally. Yeah, I think the, the what I have read is almost a, a, a very simple, I think, rudimentary conclusion in that he always wanted to be with this woman. She rejected him because he wasn't confident, he wasn't successful, he was academically not focused. And when he did right. become involved with the Republican Party and when he did get his uh, his degree, then she Ball felt school. he was confident enough, and then that's when he rejected her. And then when you do see right. the similarities, even just in the hair parted in the middle, right. just the similarities in ages, yeah, if you watch you know, Criminal Minds, you'd say, oh, here, here is this, again, Psychology 101, here's this correlation right. between destroying women right. that look like this reminded him of his failure. Sure. Um, and but you have to consider it. You have to yeah. consider it, because there it is. These Listen, the, the, the interesting thing about the Bundy case, there's a lot of mystery attached to it. Sure. Despite the stuff that I've been able to uncover, it's very unsettling for people to view Theodore Bundy with the kind of education he's had, how articulate he is, how loving he could be with people. It's very difficult in most minds to look at a human like that and then look at what he actually did when others were not looking. We have a tendency to think of pure evil, and I'm just going to say this, uh, you know, maybe people had different views, but full of tattoos. I know tattoos are popular now, but it used to be only people in prison. You could almost gauge how many years they've done by how many tattoos. That's not the way it is now. Yeah. But you know the type of person that I'm talking about where if you're, they're walking down the street, you, you're going to want to cross to the other side. Mm -hmm. He did not display any of those signals. He's the kind of person that most women that came in contact with thought he was handsome, thought he was nice, wouldn't have had any problem going out on a date with him. or what. And most guys felt very comfortable around him, very non-threatening. But on the inside pure monster. Now, I know there's a lot of people that don't like me using the term monster. They take thinks it takes away from us, uh, you know, what what was going on with the pathology of Bundy and all that stuff. And I, and I always say no, because if you're going to cut off a woman's head and take that head home to have oral sex with it, if that's not monster-like, I'm sorry, I don't think it exists. See, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And this no, is I, the reality. This is the reality of how he lived. He loved having sex with dead girls, and he loved having sex with live girls. But there's a monstrous character to Theodore Bundy, and it goes way beyond just killing a person. It's what he did with the dead, how he thought, the things that he did. And so, yeah, I think Monster aptly describes this man.
Well, it, when you talk about once the person is dead, I mean, uh, not to be uh, unfeeling, but let's get to first, let's get to mm-hmm. the, where you start your book and where Ted Bundy is on in this progression of okay. being completely being a monster. But what I found one of the most interesting aspects of your book, uh, among everything about your book that's very interesting, is that you really get into detail on the ruses on the yes. ruses. What was his ruse? How on earth could this guy? Because we're talking about, and again, I want to get the official number as far as you know. How many right. victims? Let's. Well, first thing, you tell us how many victims. Then tell us, unfold the ruse. We, you did allude to talking about the murder kit, and maybe that's yeah. jumping ahead a little bit or not. But please tell us what he all did including yes. that he was a good-looking guy. Obviously, we know that he's a good-looking, charismatic right. guy, well-groomed guy, right. but he was a skier at one time with his actual friends that he did have, and like you say, he was a pretty gregarious, friendly guy. Mm-hmm. What was the sure. ruse he used to get these intelligent, right. educated, even somewhat careful women to come with him? Right. Okay. Um, first of all, Bundy was anything but stupid, and he knew, he knew, he was articulate. He was, to some degree, well-read. He was educated. He knew he had a personality that could win people over. He also was an exceedingly good planner of murder in Washington State. He was never better at murder than when he was in Washington State because he had many factors going for him. He knew the terrain. He knew he knew so many things. He picked out body dumps, and he he discovered early on that if he would apply the ruse to what he was doing, the better off he would be in able to uh, being able to capture his victims. Sure. Now in Washington State, he would use uh, a cast. Or he would do his arm in a sling with like a uh, little, what's it called, like a splint or something. Remember, he had something on it at CWSC where his hand must have had like a little splint or something on it. He carried, at CWSC, and I talk about this in the book, he's carrying and dropping books while he's kind of laboring under an injury. And not only that, he's got a couple of packages with him that had brown parcel paper around them, you know, and tied with string. And you see a, a, a yeah. guy looking like a normal guy, and you got this thing going on. Women are going to say, can I help you with that? And he knew that would play in his favor, and it did. And so he took the natural things that he had, the abilities, and he would add to it. Now, and in, in, when he got to Utah, uh, as you, as we now know, he tried to gain and, in fact, did gain the confidence of Carol DeRoz at the Murray, uh, in Murray at the Fashion Place Mall by showing her a badge, first just announcing that he was a police officer, and she followed him. So that was, authority. that was an authority thing. And then when she demanded to see a badge, she flipped her a badge of some type. It wasn't a real police badge. So he would use that. Uh, so he'd use the crutches. He would use, you know, there were various ruses that he would use. Uh, he had a chameleon-type look to himself. There's a pretty good picture uh, that you'll see occasionally of, like, six different photographs of Bundy lined up, you know, three and three, top and bottom. And in each photograph, he looks different, and people call that the chameleon look. But even with that, even with his ability to change how he looks by combing his hair on the other side or doing something else or losing weight or, you know, whatever, he still would occasionally use, like, for instance, a false mustache like he did the night that uh, Carol Durant got away from him and he went up to Bountiful and uh, kidnapped uh, Debbie Kent. So, uh the ruse for him, in fact, when he talked to Michelle and Ainsworth, he talked about reinforcing the ruse. And I believe he talked... Um, 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. He was including this conversation. Um, I'll just tell the audience, for those that don't know, that he left Seattle, traveled about uh, 250 miles south into Corvallis, Oregon, on May 6th of 19. 19- 74. At about 11 o'clock, he met up with Kathy Parks at the um, cafeteria uh, in uh, Corvallis at the university. And, and, and I have a second story to that, but uh, he talked her into leaving with him by saying he was a student. They were going to go get a drink. Her boyfriend was coming in, but she was a little dissatisfied with him and with life, and she battled depression, so she went with him. And so he told her he had to go pick up, I think he said, a uh, resume or something that somebody was typing for him. And he called that reinforcing the ruse, but that when he got beyond the city limits and and where it was more rural, well, he was in complete control then. He stopped the car. He ordered certain things, and she obeyed. There was no getting away. So he called even conversation certain things to uh, still people and keep them from being fearful, he would call that a ruse. Now, an interesting thing came up about that when Kathy Parks was uh, headed to the cafeteria that night. The official reports talk about her running into a woman named Lorraine Fargo. And she had mailed Kathy Parks from the record. She had mailed her boyfriend a letter and this is May 6, 1974, she had mailed a letter. And really, I think this is the first time that you're all, really anybody to speak of except for uh, a site that I uh, answer questions on called Executed Today. I, the information I'm about to give here, I gave there. But uh, Lorraine Fargo ran into her uh, right before Kathy went to the cafeteria. And this was close to 11 o'clock at night. Uh, Lorraine was coming from the library, and they met each other. And... Uh, so anyway, um, uh, Kathy mailed this letter to her boyfriend, and it's because it has a postmark date of May 7th. I say in the book that perhaps she, may, she mailed it that night, maybe even, perhaps even right at the time that she talked to Lorraine Fargo. And I said, you know, it may be that Bundy was following Lorraine and then saw the vulnerability or whatever. Of Kathy, we just don't know. Well, I've spoken to Lorraine Fargo since then. Lorraine told me that my assumptions were correct. She said she was holding the letter, and there was a there was a there was a post office box not 20 feet from them. Once she was done talking to Lorraine, Kathy put the letter in the box and went on to the cafeteria. And then Lorraine tells me the story about a guy coming up to her in the library, wanting to talk to her. And Bundy used to hunt at libraries, as we as we know. And when she left the library, this guy followed. Could very well be that he saw them stop, and he and it could have been Bundy. So, you know, these are the kind of things that uh, that you know I found interesting that were actually confirmed. You know, when I talked to Lorraine Fargo, she was actually holding the letter when they were talking, and I've seen pictures of of, of where they stood. It's right across from the cafeteria. But in in Kathy Park's case, Bundy said. The things he said to her were reinforcing the ruse. So Bundy considered anything that he could use to fool somebody part of the ruse. Now, what was the murder kit? What did the murder kit consist of? What was the uh, – we have yeah. sort of the MO of and – uh-huh. we, and we, we want to know the full signature. What is exactly – what did he do 
to um, I mean all those victims there is a uh, okay. th- there is some differences so you, again you can go through those tell right. us where where he started and where he finished uh in terms of what he actually did to those victims and what was what were what was contained in the murder kit itself okay what, what the the astute detectives who came on the scene they took one look at the kit and they knew that this guy wasn't a burglar i mean it's like they said some of the stuff in there, you know it's for tying people up. Well, here's what was in the bag. It's a brown satchel, kind of like a gin bag. He carried uh, a ski mask in there. He carried two right-handed gloves. There were, you know, the left glove was gone. He carried two right-handed gloves. One was uh, a blue puffy ski type, and the other one was brown woolen with, with leather on it. Now, these would be used... When, when he would drag the bodies out just to give him traction to hold on to, to the wrist or whatever of the body that he was dragging. A lot of these girls had dra- bruises and scratches from drag marks, okay, post-mortem. Anyway, so he'd have two right-handed gloves. He'd have a, he, he, he would have a, um, uh, the ski mask. He had an ice pick. I believe the ice pick he used to puncture holes in the women for some reason. I don't necessarily believe that he used them to actually kill the women. He had an electrical cord, which he used for choking, and he probably used that every time. He also had clothesline rope. You could use that for choking, but it could be for binding up people. That was in there as well. Plus, he had taken a white sheet and cut and cut these up into strips, and that was for binding hands and feet. Uh, as I said, he carried the glad bags in the bag uh, to uh, – he never left anything on the bodies beyond, say, a beaded or wooden necklace. Why he left those on there, he must have had his reasons. Could have easily jerked them right off the neck, but uh, – or he would leave uh, – if he choked them with a stocking, he would he would usually leave that. But a lot of times he'll use this electrical cord. Anyway, that was in there. And then there was a flashlight, which would come in handy because he's often found himself himself out in the woods at night, and you would absolutely need one. And uh, let's see, there was, uh, let's see, I don't know about the cover, I guess. Oh, and he, there was a pantyhose mask and a plus, and plus he had um, he had handcuffs. Now the ha- And, of course, he had the crowbar. But the handcuffs and the pantyhose mask were not with the kit that came to Louisville. The crowbar... And I believe the handcuffs were with the uh, court system in Utah, I believe, in the hands of Judge Hansen, which he died last year. Maybe his family has a crowbar. I know that Jerry Thompson, when 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 Jerry Thompson uh, when Bundy was arrested in Florida, Jerry Thompson flew down there, and because Bundy was caught with a pantyhose mask down there, uh, and Thompson flew in there with that pantyhose mask. So it could be entered into evidence, so they could make some kind of correlation. It's the judge, uh, the judge denied it down there for some reason. So I don't know if that ever came back from Florida, but everything else in this kit came to Louisville. And uh, I say in the book, if you want to see how the murders changed, I, I say in the book uh, that in Utah he kicked it up a notch. Um, there is strong, strong evidence that. Two of the girls, Laura Amy and Melissa Smith, were kept alive for a number of days. Absolutely, it's without question, uh, when Melissa Smith was taken, um, her body didn't turn up for a certain period of time. When they did locate her body, uh, they determined that she'd only been dead for like about five days, and she'd been gone a lot longer, so... Uh, there was no place really to go and store them, so uh, there's a detective of the opinion, and I have to agree with him, that uh, Bundy took her to his apartment at 565 First Avenue near the University of Utah. Now, Melissa Smith was the daughter of of Lewis Smith, who was the chief of of police of Midvale, Utah. Midvale's just a suburb of, like, Salt Lake. There are these little cities that run. It's all one kind of big metropolitan area. Anyway, when the sister of Melissa Smith, Jolene, saw her sister, she told detectives, that's not my sister's makeup she's wearing. Plus, even though she was dead and she had scratches and bruises on her from the hauling and all that, 
sure. uh, and cranium damage, which ultimately killed her. In other words, when she was hit, she never regained consciousness and lived for a number of days with Bundy, and that was fine with him. But he had washed her hair, cleaned her body, reapplied makeup, and left her out in the woods or in, in a location that uh, she could be found. And that wasn't very odd of Bundy. Sometimes he wouldn't put people too far off the road, if you know what I mean. Almost like he wanted them to be found. But the thing about Utah is he kicked it up a notch. He was wanting to not just kill women and do things there, or he admitted to having at least four heads at one time in his apartment in Washington State. But in Utah, he was bringing living, although perhaps comatose bodies, to his apartment complex, I mean to to the, the house he lived in. He either carried them up the stairs or up the fire escape, and nothing was too bizarre. The normal mind would think, oh, you wouldn't do that. But you got to throw all that away with Bundy. There are things he did that you wouldn't think anybody would do when it comes to kidnapping and murder. You just wouldn't do it, but he did it anyway. Some people think maybe he stuffed them down in the utility room, but I don't think so because that could have traffic of other people in there and they could be discovered. So I believe he had them in his room at different times, but... They were there, and when they finally died, he washed them up or whatever and got rid of them. So he, he, he kicked things up a notch. And then if you look at how the murders went by the time he went to Florida, he was a very, very disorganized killer there. He was a very, part of the time he was there, physically dirty. Very, he was undergoing, by the time he got to Florida, his own version of a meltdown. But again, that's, a, that's, that's later down the road. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story that the scent that it gone. What you don't mention is, and uh, again, you've spoken to it uh, somewhat, is that he raped and sodomized these women. So he certainly he could, yes, for lack of a better word, perform. And he was a necrophile, so that definitely he wanted to have sex with the dead bodies. That was yeah, something I, that I did not know about, and I I would I bet oh, yeah. that most people that think they know the Ted Bundy story aren't aware of that aspect of it. Oh. Oh, that usually is the separation there. between the very weirdest um, killers, the Dahmers, uh, even mm-hmm. Gacy would never, yeah. uh, as far as anyone knows, didn't engage in that. But, I mean, yeah. not to make yeah, him yeah. much better than he is. But it is sort of a yeah. unique thing it's in terms of uh, these people admitting that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, and it's not like it's not like he couldn't perform with living women because he could. Yeah. And he could have sex normal sex with living women, his girlfriends, whatever, and then he could have sex with the dead. I mean, you know, it's just, and he used to love those moments right after a woman. He used to love the breath going out of them. He wanted to be there when they expire and, you know, the the uh, the change in body color uh, and the, of the freshly dead. He really enjoyed that. Okay, so well, you know, this is this is the kind of you know there are people out there that, that 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 commit murder, and they don't even think in terms like this. This Theodore Bundy is certainly not unique in as much as there aren't other people out there like him. There are, but he's very unique as to what Theodore Bundy was on the outside and what he accomplished. You see, Ross Davis, who is the head of uh, the Republican Party out there, like the Central. I can't say it now, it's been so long, but the Central Washington State Committee or something like that. Mm-hmm. He told me, he said Bundy could have had anything he wanted. You know, he had a lot of influential friends. He was educated. And and I say in the book, had he gone into law or politics, it doesn't matter. The proper doors were going to open for him. But in the midst of it all, the core of Bundy was not becoming governor, becoming a lawyer, having a wife and children and, and a nine-to-five. His core value was murder. And as that started rising in him to where he was going to pass from the barrier from fantasy to reality, he reached a point what, that he just internally discarded the mask of a life, and he was only going to do that which would help him to stay secret. But he got to the place where he knew that all of these accomplishments and all of the influential 
influential friends he had and where he could have gone. He wasn't going there, and he knew it. And I say something like this in the book, that on that day, there would be no exit ramps for him. He was going one way, and that's all he wanted. In fact, he told Bill Hagmeyer, he said, I don't know why it's so hard for people to understand that I just enjoyed killing people. He uh-huh. just enjoyed killing people. And that's that's what he was going to do. And Bill said, and he just said to himself, I'm going to keep doing this until I'm caught. And that's essentially how he lived his uh, life. Now, I personally believe that Bundy killed before 1974. I think he killed in 1973, and I think it's highly likely that he killed Anne-Marie Burr. I know some people will scream and say, oh, that's ridiculous, but he implicated himself. And I, and I go into this in the book. Right. He implicated himself to uh, Ron Holmes, who was also here from Louisville, and I interviewed Ron. And uh, in the third person, like a Michelle Ainsworth thing, when he was confessing to them in the third person, he directly linked himself to the murder of uh, Anne-Marie Burr. Did he kill Burr? There's no way of knowing, but again, this is part of the mystery of what he was. Now, you ask about the total. They come up with a total of 35, 36. That is probably correct. I think it's probably a little low, a little low. But talk of 100, that's absurd. I, I, I just don't believe it, but I do believe it's probably above 35, and I do believe he killed more girls like 12 years old or maybe 13, whatever, than he, than he would have admitted to. And, and in fact, uh, he admitted to killing 11 in Washington State, but really he only named eight. He admitted to killing eight in Utah, but he only named five. Right. Bundy had things that he was not going to talk about. Bundy had his secrets. And I'm sure he hated the fact that he had to share some of those at the end of his life to try to gain more time. Sure. He didn't like that because he considered that information belonging to him and said so. I've even got a place in the book where he talked about that. It's right. mine. It's mine to, like, you know, to give away or you know, whatever the transcript says. So he hated doing that. But there were numerous things that I know Bundy took to the grave with him, and there's just information that we're just never going to know, and there's women out there that never came home and there's no knowledge of where they are, and he killed them. Just like there's other women that have died by other people's hands, and they're just they're just never going to come home again. Nobody knows what happened to them. Now, what I found was really fascinating. Again, a very almost like a Hollywood a- adaptation. He is arrested. Tell us about his arrest. How it he came to be arrested, and then secondly, yeah. how did he ever escape? Uh, once on the, on the lam for a week, and then how does he escape again? Yeah. Give, us, give us sort of briefly how this scenario happens, because of course it could have spared the lives of numerous women in Florida. So tell us about these escapes. Who was responsible? Yeah. How the heck did Ted Bundy pull this off? Yeah. Well, listen, people. Some people in Colorado won't like to hear this, but the only reason why there were three women murdered in in Florida is because the jailers in Colorado for not doing their job. They are directly responsible. Those who did not secure him are directly responsible for the murders of those girls. And they can say they're not, but they are, because he escaped not once but twice. And he was in Colorado, and I can go back to the arrest. Bundy felt so secure, he was out looking for a victim on August 16, 1975, when he was pulled over in Granger, Utah, he had the, he said he wasn't. He said he was oh just out smoking uh, some uh, pot and he wasn't. But but he's he is a liar and the evidence is there. In other words, he had the seat out and he would and it was laying in the back seat. That means he was looking for a woman to club right. and lay her down there. So he had his seat out. He had the murder kit open, the same murder kit that came to my house. He had it open. Stuff was spilling out. He was ready to use it. He was smoking pot, he got pulled over by this cop, and he's taken in. It's not till a little later they start putting two and two uh, about this guy. But here's what happened. In January of 75, months before he was arrested, he killed Karen Campbell up at Snowmass, a Michigan, uh, nurse out of Michigan who came with her boyfriend, Dr. Raymond Gadowski, and his kids to Snowmass for skiing. I think within about 24 hours she was dead. 
And Mike Fisher out of Colorado, and he and I worked together closely on, on this book, he is the one that uh, uh, was finally was able to bring a warrant for murder against Bundy because the gasoline receipts placed him near to where those murders in Colorado took place. It was just more than Karen uh, – I mean more than um, Karen Campbell. There was – Julie Cunningham, so on and so forth. And so they knew they had their guy. So he gets this murder warrant, and they take him. Uh, Bundy had been sentenced to 1 to 15 years for the attempted abduction or kidnapping of Carol LaRange. And so he was doing 1 to 15 years at Point of the Mountain Prison in Utah. Well, they came and got him because he was going to stay in trial for murder in Colorado. Well, he, you know, he's in the uh, Aspen Jail. It's a very old building, and he gets to know the guards. Everybody likes him. He's Ted, you know. And, uh, you know, Jerry Thompson's warning. Mike Fisher's warning. You can't let this guy out of your sight. Uh, he's going to escape. He's a, he's a murderer. He's a vicious individual. And I don't know. He's just Ted, you know. He's reading his law books in the library. Well, one day he goes in to read the law, law books library, jumps out the second-story window. Off he goes uh, into the wild. So, now, he, he 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 snookered the jailers, but he couldn't snooker the wilds of Colorado. And yeah. within five or six days, he was back, and he was incarcerated. He, he tried to come back and steal a car. And so then he was transferred to another jail later for another reason. He's already had one escape. Yeah. They're warning him. They say we the other prisoners saying. He's, un- he's undone the light fixture above, and it, 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 there was a plate that needed welding, and he got up like kind of like in a rafter-type thing. They could hear him crawling about. The prisoners warned them. Uh, Jerry Thompson warned them again. Michael Fisher warned them. Oh, he's just Ted. You know, he's not It's okay. Gone. Second time, gets away. Uh, hostile flight to Chicago. Takes a train to Ann Arbor. Goes to the university. Steals a car. Uh, comes through Louisville, has breakfast, heads to Atlanta, dumps the car in Atlanta, takes a trailways bus to Tallahassee. Nobody knows this guy. He gets saddled. That desire for murder comes back. Off he goes. But let me tell you something. People lost their jobs in Colorado because they didn't watch him. Three women lost their lives. You know, yeah. horrible, horrible thing. Nobody should have died after he was arrested. I mean, after he was transferred to Colorado, if they'd have put that man on lockdown. Uh, that it, I mean, that would have been it. He had never killed anybody else. You know what's very interesting too is the when you talk about uncontrollable urges. I don't know if it could really apply to so many people, but with yeah. Ted Bundy, you can see this is testament. He is he is gone. He has escaped. He's far away from the scene. He has the ability, like a chameleon, to be able to. He yeah. has a. He has a different. Uh, he has a different alias. He's already yeah. uh, in. in uh, he's already ingratiated himself with a bunch of people. He's already in this sort of a different situation. Yet he has mm-hmm. to kill, and he has to kill, yeah. and he has to kill the way Ted Bundy kills. He can't yeah. and, be quiet. Yeah. He 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 has to do it with this force. This you talk about yeah. this uh, this monstrous full transformation, yeah. but it certainly is in Florida, isn't it? But I'll tell you something interesting. By the time he he reached Florida, he has, he had lost his edge to kill. He was no longer, and I point this out in the book, the suave predator of 1974-75. During those periods, he could draw women to him like a magnet. However, by the time he's in Florida, he's putting out the kind of vibes that are actually repelling women and repulsing them. When he tried to pick up women next to Chi Omega at the, um, oh gosh, I need my own book here, uh, the disco, Sherrod's disco next door. Right. The women called him creepy. His eyes were weird. He wasn't drawing women. He was repelling women. And so, and I point this out in the book, so what does he do? He can't get the conscious women. He goes next door in the middle of the night and attacks the unconscious women at Chi Omega. And the funny thing about this is it had been a long time since he had killed. And if you look at the M.O. of the person that attacked the women in Chi Omega, Mm -hmm. and you look at the M.O. 
of Bundy the killer in either Washington State or Utah, you're not going to think you're not. Yeah, you're not going to think they're the same guys at all. Yeah. You see, he was defending as a killer. He was becoming more animalistic, wherein he was exceedingly careful of leaving evidence behind in Washington State. He was as sloppy as he could be in Florida. And after the after, and I point this out in the book, after the frenzy at Chi Omega, he's walking away from Chi Omega, holding the log that he attacked the women with by his side. And the guy goes by and sees it. So does he go home at that point? And does he try to hide? No. The killer in him is not satiated. What does he do? While sirens are wailing, he's walking just a few blocks over. I've been over this whole area. He goes over to Dunwoody. It's just a stone's throw. And he attacks the, the Thomas woman in her apartment. So the killer had not satiated himself with Chi Omega, and while the sirens are wailing, he's looking for another victim. This is not the, the, uh, the, 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 act, the uh, attitude and the activity of even a normal killer who should by this time be saying, uh, time to fly away now. I've done my work. I need to go and attack another day. No, he continues the thing, but he gets away with it, and of course, he goes on, and then later he kills 12-year-old Kim Leach in Lake City, and of course that's the murder he's ultimately put to death for. Yeah. What I thought was uh, to re- really reinforce what you're saying is that there are uh, various potential victims that escape, like Carol LaRanche, and and ends up testifying against him at court, but there are other people too that again, later in your investigation and, and before that as well, were would-be victims but just didn't fall for the ruse completely and Ted right. was more than compliant to let them go. So he wasn't desperate at all. He he had the ability to attract all kinds of different mm-hmm. uh, potential victims with mm-hmm. almost a sort of ease so that when he had yes. somebody that had resistance and could expose them, he just let them yes. go. Yes, yes, yes. Now, he, he Ted tells an interesting story once. He was, uh, it, he uh, had a lady, uh, you know, he was doing the same thing he did with uh, George Ann Hawkins, where he's stumbling, you know, and trying to carry a briefcase or whatever. And, and just like he got George Ann Hawkins, she helps him to his car. And he was all ready to hit this girl over the head with a crowbar. And he himself didn't know why. But he said, once in a while, I would just call it off. I'd say thanks a lot and go on. And I don't think he knew why he did it. I think that was the exception rather than the rule. Now, and I don't mean as a dry run. He used to do dry runs just to see if he could do it. That's how much he prepared murder in Washington State. But he came out and said there were times when he meant to do that. And at the last moment, he said, like, for some reason, I just changed my mind. And there are other women I know that when he confessed to the Lynette Culver murder in uh, in Idaho, um, he said, uh, you know, there were other attempts, but not anything that would have let the women know like they were about to be abducted. So there's a number of women that came close to an encounter with him and then never knew it. You know, he was attempting to pull it off. And I found out reasons why he had extra trouble, you might say, when he was up there uh, the day before he got the, uh, before he got Lynette Culver, uh, even though it was May 6th, it was the one-year anniversary, uh, by the way, of the Kathy Parks abduction, but May 6th, 1975, and he's up uh, at the uh, university and up there, and it's, you know, winter is still kind of like holding on to its grasp, and both days he was there. It was cold and snow showers, and, and so I say in the book, um, you know, women coming from their car, going into a place, I don't care if a guy's hobbling or not. If it's cold and they're freezing, they're going to say, oh, yeah, 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 and, and they're going to go on. So that hindered him. He didn't know the area. That hindered him. There was various things that was hindering him from capturing, you know, uh, the college-age women while he was there. Well, it just so happens the next day he was trolling and got 12-year-old uh, Lynette Culver and took her back to the Holiday Inn and did not have sex with her prior to murdering her, but he drowned her in the tub. And then he had sex with her. 
And uh, this is the particular case where I called William Hagemeyer and I said, Bill, I got her name and I, I got the manner of her death, but I don't, uh, I don't uh, have anything else. When he heard the manner of her death, he said, I don't think that that's probably what happened because that's not the way Bundy used to like to kill his women. But, uh, but if you find out any more about it, please let me know. And then I found out exactly what happened. And, uh, um, you know, uh, it didn't come out in the regular confession. When Russ Renew uh, and um, his, uh, like, assist, not assistant, but the associate criminal in, investigator, when they were dealing with Bundy in the last hours of his life, last couple of days, uh, they were covering the Lynette Culver murder, and they were covering the girl that Bundy picked up as, as uh, a hitchhiker on his move to Utah that right. he killed uh, in the state. And they were going back and forth really fast. And Bundy had mentioned that he drowned Culver and put her body in the river. But when they were walking out of the prison, Russ looked at Randy Everett and said, you know, he never really said how he drowned her. Could you go back in and find out exactly what happened there? And this was an unscheduled meeting. It wasn't sanctioned by Bundy's attorney. William Hagmar wasn't there. Randy Everett, Randy Everett is led back into the prison and waited for Bundy in a room, and here comes Bundy. And he said, you know, something like, Ted, you said you drowned the girl. How did you do it? He said, oh, I drowned her in the tub. And, you know, and then he had sex with her, so on and so forth. But that's why Hagmeyer never knew that the girl was drowned, because Hagmeyer told me, you got to remember, Bundy's M.O. for killing women, a lot of times, and this is what he did, it's graphic, but it's true, it's all part of the story, he used to have sex with them, either anally or vaginally, from behind, and he would choke them to death at the same time mm-hmm. because of the physiological things that go on when they die. So this is something oh. he really enjoyed. And so Hagmar said, I, I, I've never known Bundy to drown anybody, never admitted to it, but uh, that came out in like this little extra meeting. And so these are some of the things I was able to find out that a few people knew, a few investigators knew, but it never made it into print. See what I'm saying? So anyway... Yeah, no, it's uh, you've done an amazing job with this. Uh, when you say a comprehensive history, you're not kidding. This is uh, an incredible uh, must-have. Again, as a, anybody that that's interested in any of these killers, this is this is like uh, again. Uh, I talked last night about sort of the golden age, for lack of a better term. These guys were the template that uh, the, the criminal profiles studied to under try to understand. I'm uh, not to say to understand, but to try to understand these. People and Ted Bundy, like you say, is all encompassing. He is the the narcissistic, charismatic, the the organized serial killer, but he's also the necrophile, which is usually associated with less organized kinds of killers. And then, like yes. you say, his MO changes, his signature seems to change to a certain degree. There's an escalation, a progression. Uh, it's an amazing story. Right, so yeah. I want to. I want to thank you very much, uh, Kevin, for uh, coming on Thanks the program. Thanks for having and, me on, Dan. And, uh, As for those, always, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I, I know I did, and I know our audience uh, will really appreciate this, this interview. And I want to uh, let people know that they've been listening to Kevin Sullivan with his book, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin, and uh, I hope you have a, a great weekend. You too. We'll see you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the program, True Murder, the Most Shocking Killers in True Crime History, and the authors that have written about them. I'll see you in the future.